0: Welcome to Lit Sci Pod, the literature and science podcast
1: with your hosts, me, Dr. Laura Ludke and Dr. Catherine Charlewood. Rachel, we're really glad you could join us for the special mini-sode of Lit Sci Pod Because you were our first guest, we weren't able to offer the B33 challenge to you.
0: But that doesn't mean you're getting away with not doing it.
1: So if you could begin by describing your research very broadly and then move to three points and finally three words we will prompt you as you go.
2: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me back. Secondly, I was both very disappointed and relieved when I heard (laughs) the second episode and realized that I'd missed out on the B33 challenge. So um, here we go. So broadly, in fact, I'm going to go very, very broad. I'm interested in the ways in which literature and science interact and overlap and kind of speak to each other in weird and interesting ways. I guess I'm particularly fascinated by the ways in which similar ideas emerge across disciplines at the same sort of time. And I'm interested in how we can think about that and how we can talk about that and try to model it or understand it. And in particular, what's been useful for me, is Gillian Beer's idea. Uh, she says that scientists and poets, in her words, share the moment's discourse, and that's been a really interesting and useful way for me to approach this whole field. I think
1: it's just such a lovely way of expressing it. I don't think anyone can top that. I know it's I mean, beautiful.
2: Isn't I'm,
0: it? quite, I'm quite poetic somehow yeah. as
2: well. Yeah, it just works, and and I think you know it works on so many levels when you start taking apart what sharing might mean. It just yeah, it's brilliant.
1: So in the first episode, you spoke sort of how you got into the field of literature and science, there are sort of shared interest, a mutual exploration <laughs> yes. um, with, your, with, with your husband. Um, but sort of how has, how has that developed more broadly in your research? I don't know.
2: Uh, it seems to me you get similar ideas at certain moments in time that emerge across different disciplines, so that when you start looking across disciplines, you can see them sort of saying the same things or maybe asking the same questions, trying to answer the same questions. And then we have to try and work out how to talk about that. So sometimes we can say direct influence, so we can see a particular author perhaps uh, reading a book. So for instance, D.H. Lawrence, we know he read something about relativity. And then he starts using the word relativity a lot uh, and doing strange things with it. And you can say, oh, OK, in that case, there's some kind of direct influence going on. But at other times, we're talking about something a little more abstract, complicated, uh, vague, um, difficult, uncertain. All, all, the, all right the right words. words. Yep. <laughs> all the difficult words. So, yes, in my thesis and in the book, I was looking at three ideas in particular, Uh, So it's funny for me that it's the b 33 challenge because I do have a bit of an obsession with threes. (laughs) Um, So I was looking at ideas associated with three of Einstein's 1905 papers. Um, So one of those is relativity, which is probably the one that most people are familiar with. It's the special theory of relativity that's published in 1905. But also there's his paper on light, where he starts to explore the idea of light as a particle rather than just as a wave. Um, And then also the paper on Brownian motion, where he's thinking about how... How molecules move. Elsewhere, Gillian Beer talks about kind of shared anxieties of the time, or N. Catherine Hales has talked about shared concerns of a moment. And I guess what I'm trying to do in the book is to look at three different types of anxiety or concern or issue um, that are being explored across disciplines at the same time.
0: It's really interesting that in all these cases, it's an anxiety, a concern, rather than. Um, any sort of precise notion, yeah. because I think one of the things that that literature and science can do so well is to bring awareness to the fact that science, particularly you know in the moments of discovery, can be anything but precise. Yeah. Although you know perhaps we uh, assume a lot of the time that uh, science has all of these precise results, precise data, and is even perhaps sometimes unfairly thought of as having too precise a language. Mm. Yes, that's true.
2: I, I mean, Einstein's paper on light is called uh, something like on a heuristic point of view concerning the production and transformation of light. So even in the title of that paper, he's kind of saying this is a hypothesis, this is uncertain. I'm trying something out. We're not quite sure. Um, and and he keeps that idea of uncertainty
0: running through the paper, really. I like that the title sounds a bit like it could be the
1: title of a philosophical. Yes, mm-hmm. that was going to be my remark. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there was a time when I wanted to kind of use it as the title of the thesis, but, uh, but then that just got a bit silly, really. So I used Gillian Beer's Sharing the Moment's Discourse instead, which was much more sensible.
1: <laughs> well, you were thinking about Einstein's papers and structures of three, about the way in which there can be cultural investigations into a question and scientific ones and others and sort of the way in which you try and discover what, the germinal connection between them is Mm -hmm. yes
2: Uh, i don't know if i have any answers to that though (laughs) but is that what's driven all of your projects um yes i guess so yeah i hadn't really thought of it quite like that but yes i think the driving question is sort of why these issues Why these disciplines? Why this moment? What is it that's going on that is causing people to think in these ways or ask these particular questions or or try to find these kinds of answers?
0: That sounds like a good thing to investigate to me.
1: (laughs) But but equally, you know, it borrows maybe from some of the practices of detective work or at least literary detective work.
2: Yes, that's a funny thing. When when I took a copy of my book to my parents-in-law, my father-in-law opened it at, at a random page, uh, which was where I was talking about Lawrence reading a particular book on relativity. And the fact is, we don't know which one he read. Uh, he may even have read two. We're not really quite sure. And my father-in-law was sort of reading this page and, and he sort of looked at me and said, This is like being a detective. Uh, And I thought, yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that before. I I think that's a compliment. Thank you. I'll have it.
1: (laughs) Well, people are drawn into detective fictions. And so I think that's one of the attractions of your work is that you grasp people because you really want to know why and you are able to invest them in knowing why.
2: Oh, that's really sweet. Thank you. The thing is, I suppose I might disappoint them because there isn't a kind of big reveal scene at the end. You know, it, it isn't as easy at the end as being able to say, OK, I've done all this detective work and at last I can
0: reveal that the cause behind all these things is... Life. <laughs> yes, life. <laughs> that's a but good why, why should you be able to come up with a single definitive answer when a lot of these questions and ideas have in different ways been sort of brewing over in Mm. some cases millennia
2: yes that's a really good point and I think maybe in some ways it's taken me quite a while to realize that about academic work that yes we are trying to answer questions but we're not trying to answer them in a kind of closed off finished sort of way I mean in many ways what we're trying to do is raise new questions isn't it Or, or different angles on the same question to keep
0: the conversation going well, one of the things I always enjoy writing um, when proposing a new project is that something prizes open the question of, and so yes, it's actually that you're announcing, I'm about to make this much more complicated than it was before. Yes. Oh, that's a lovely way of putting it. Yes, let's do that. Let's make everything more complicated. <laughs> I don't
2: know. I mean, I feel there's a lot of pressure on us to answer questions. Um and Kathy, you talk about kind of doing those application forms. And I mean, the strange thing about those is that it seems to me they're often... They're often asking for you to know the answer already yes. um, that you're writing the form, this is what the research will find, but surely the reason you do the research is because you don't know what the research will find. So I guess there's a lot of pressure on people to churn out answers that seem kind of definitive and
0: final in that way well, and and I've always thought that those application forms must be even more frightening, well, possibly more frightening to scientists because mm. there you have a hypothesis, but you could spend you know lots of money and actually your hypothesis was wrong and you don't come out with the with any kind of answer you know whether it was the one you expected or not but you know that there is an inherent risk to almost to having the opportunity to test that hypothesis
1: well and I do I I do understand that there is um, a pressure on young scientists in particular to not publish negative results
0: Mm -hmm. so we
1: have whole swathes of science um, scientific disciplines where research is being reduplicated because the negative result was never never published and so people assume it wasn't studied mm. and that's quite interesting.
2: That is really interesting and it's sort of making me think of um, Eddington back in 1919 getting ready for the relativity eclipse expeditions um, and I'm trying to remember who it is who writes the article I think it might be Andrew Warwick who's written about this um, but he talks about how Eddington is very clever at kind of constructing an audience for the results of the Eclipse expeditions. So acknowledging before they take place that you know, yes, they might find that Einstein is correct, but also they might find that he's not or they might kind of find something in between. They might not be sure. And I went to a talk when um, around the time when they were thinking about the Higgs boson, looking for the Higgs boson and, and heard a scientist make a similar case that, yes, we might find it. We might find that it doesn't exist or perhaps the more interesting one, we might find there's something else. Um, and it's quite interesting how you can kind of frame those things for the public, I suppose.
0: Well, I think the public are possibly more forgiving about that than mm. um than funding bodies, right? So what yeah. so something that can be framed as very exciting and a world of possibility to, but isn't you know the money the backer, <laughs> yes. But how do you how do you persuade funding body that this might not go the way we want it to, but actually that's that's okay. That could even be a positive thing. Yeah, and of course a lot of things are
2: found when you're looking for something else,
1: so. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) I think those accidental finds are just the most, I think they're the most rewarding part of research.
0: Dr Rachel Crossland, can you please give us three points of your research?
2: I think I can, Um, but as I said before there is this kind of there's this strangeness of three. I think human beings like the number three, don't they? I certainly do. So uh, I could think of various different kinds of three that I could have here because I have got the three parts to the book, which are those three Einstein papers, or I've got three people in the book in the sense of Einstein and then Virginia Woolf and D.H. Lawrence. Uh, but I kind of I wanted to go beyond that. Um, so I'm going for... Uh, the early twentieth century is one of the main points that—that's what most of my research has been focused on so far, or what we might call the modernist period. Um, and I think that's a particularly exciting time in both literature and physics, which uh, physics has been the main area of research for me so far. Although I'm, I'm hoping to branch out into other sciences. Um, so yes, that early twentieth-century moment as a time of uh, change and fragmentation and questioning uh i think probably part of that also has something to do to do with the draw of the centenary i, I think there's something quite appealing at looking back um, a yeah. uh, hundred years ago yeah i was talking to my ma students about this earlier this week um, so yes so that is my that's one of my three points is that all right that's
0: very good yeah
2: um and then the next one is popular science Um, And I've become increasingly interested in that as an area. uh, I suppose it's a really good area to think about in terms of where literature and science is happening, because in popular science, you've got those two things coming together in a very obvious kind of way. Uh, So often the popular science that I'm looking at is written by scientists. So that's great because it gives me a chance to think about scientists as writers, scientists as engaging with kind of literary forms and literary devices. Uh, But also popular science is often the place where our literary authors come into contact with science. Um, So it works really neatly kind of both ways to be thinking about that. Um, So so I talk about that in my book, thinking about the ways in which scientific ideas have reached a non-scientific audience but more recently I've also been thinking about popular science in relation to poetry Um, so looking at Rebecca Elson who was an astronomer she died in 1999 and I've been looking at some of her poems and thinking about the way in which they might be versions of popular science and how we might be able to think of those as doing the same
0: thing. I think we've recently had quite another good example of how Poetry can possibly give um, an airing or give an enlarged audience to scientific discoveries, or mm. well, in this case, I guess medical discoveries. But I'm thinking of the the Simon Armitage poem uh, scratched onto the cancer pill. Mm. Oh, I don't know but like Micro inscribed, so you could, you know, you, you couldn't possibly read it with the naked eye. But it's an incredibly short poem because the whole point was that it would fit on this um, this drug.
2: That's really fascinating, though. I didn't know about that. So what's number three? Uh, So number three is periodicals, uh, which I've become increasingly interested in. So I started looking at some while I was working on my thesis and and some of those examples made it into the book. But I I think there's much more to be said there. So the next big project is about periodicals. Um, And I think the thing that's really exciting about them, I mean, you've had Will Tutter still on, so you know, I can't compete with that kind of level of excitement about periodicals. But um, what's so exciting about periodicals I think is that they provide this kind of shared medium, um, you know, sort of adapting Gillian Beer's phrase, that we've got this kind of this idea of discourse of the moment that is shared, but in periodicals that's actually happening in the same place. Um, And most of the time the articles or the the pieces in the periodical aren't speaking directly to each other, but nevertheless they appear side by side and that has some bearing on the way in which we read them. Um,
0: And they're just endlessly fascinating for what they include. And quite funny a lot of the time as well. And some of those juxtapositions can be... um accidentally yes, or absolutely this is something that i've been working with in an outreach context for um gcse <laughs> students and trying to show them examples of periodicals to say you know look these two things were not as removed for this readership in the 19th century in the early yeah. 20th century
1: as they are for you i talk about a particular article on um the effect of electric light on plants and it's published right alongside an article by Gertrude Stein because she studied psychology as an undergraduate at Harvard. And so she published some of her early work, and you think, what is she doing, you know, unexpectedly um, in this psychological review? There she is.
2: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I you know, I won't talk about that specifically in this in this project, but there it is. And and
2: did people know that was there?
1: Or I don't know to what extent people know that it's there. I'm sure people who study Stein sort of know where all of her different publications are, but it's quite early on. And remember, she's an undergraduate doing sort of like summer, summer research work. Um, And she did, and people do know that she worked with William James um, so that they would be aware of, 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 of that. But um, I don't think people have looked at it in and of itself. How exciting. I'm glad someone else feels that way. What I love about (laughs) this podcast (laughs) <laughs> okay we're gonna have to move to the three points and actually I've been thinking of three words that might suit your research so let's see if they <gasps> match up
2: oh that's really scary you haven't done that for anyone else <laughs> this is like some strange kind of academic form of Mr and Mrs now okay right um this was very hard I have agonized over this uh, so modernism periodicals and sharing. Ooh, Ooh.
0: <laughs> I like it. Thank you for okay, Laura. What was what well? Was I came your, up with physics,
1: pop sci, um and periodicals. But that maybe that's yeah. too simplistic.
0: I oh, no, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. We've got we've got a Venn diagram going on here. <laughs> I really like sharing um, because it's the first time that's come up, and I think. Especially given that this whole podcast and anyone who works in this area, interdisciplinary work is by nature collaborative. And collaboration only works via disciplines and those working within them being prepared to share, share a discourse, share ideas, share knowledge, share working practices. So I think that's, that's fantastic that that's come up.
2: Also, I mean, that is exactly what you're doing with the podcast as well. Um, you know, not to be too cheesy, uh, but you are sharing the discipline more widely as well. Well, which is if, really if listeners
1: have made it through all six episodes, then they'll know that we're here for the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy and I have been plotting away about how to make the next series of LitSidePod happen. And we're very excited to announce that
0: uh, we were awarded funding by the British Society for Literature and Science. Which seems like a natural
1: fit, of course. Uh, it's going to go a long way to ha- helping the second series along.
0: And it's going to literally send us a long way because um, the reason we have asked for funding uh, is to be able to travel to uh, literature and science hubs in universities that are at a fair distance
1: from the pair yeah. of us. So tune in for series two, which will be coming after a number of minisodes um and we'll have new guests for you new ideas old ideas old guests <laughs> <laughs> it just keeps coming it's been so lovely recording again with you rachel thank you so much for you know sharing sharing your time with us
2: haha no thank you so much
0: it's such a pleasure and congratulations on the funding and i think i think we should give a lit iPod shout out to uh, all of rachel's students at university of chichester who have already signed up to her literature and science course they have
2: yes so normally it runs in semester one but for some reason this year it's running in semester two so i have a number who are signed up ready to get going in january so yes hello to them and they should listen to all the episodes
1: thanks for joining us we hope you'll join us next time And if you like what you've heard and want to hear more, or if you want to join in on the conversation, please follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at LitSciPod. Don't forget to tweet using the hashtag LitSciPod. You can even email us at Litsipod at gmail.com. You'll be able to find a full list of the sources we've mentioned today
0: in our episode description. LitSciPod is available across all podcasting platforms.